Good evening. I hope you've had a wonderful day today. Welcome to BVJ's Bedtime Stories. My name is Big Voice Jay, and this is a show where we get you ready for a great night's sleep with some old familiar stories that you haven't heard in a while. Links to every story can be found in the show notes at our website, bedtimewithbvj.com. Tonight, we continue our story, The Jungle Book, by Rudyard Kipling. Mowgli went on with his work, but it was nearly twilight before he and the wolves had drawn the great skin off the body. Now, we must hide this and take the buffaloes home. Help me to herd them, Akila. The herd rounded up in the misty twilight, and when they got near the village, Mowgli saw lights and heard the conchers and the bells in the temple blowing and banging. Half the village seemed to be waiting for him by the gate. That is because I have killed Shere Khan, he said to himself. But a shower of stones whistled about his ears, and the villagers shouted, Sorcerer! Wolf's brat! Jungle demon! Go away! Get hence quickly, or the priest will turn thee into a wolf again! Shoot, Buldeo! Shoot! The old tower musket went off with a bang, and a young buffalo bellowed in pain. More sorcery, shouted the villagers. He can turn bullets. Boldio, that was thy buffalo. Now what is this, said Mowgli, bewildered, as the stones flew thicker. They are not unlike the pack, these brothers of thine, said Akela, sitting down composedly. It is in my head that, if bullets mean anything, they would cast thee out. Wolf! Wolf's cub! Go away, shouted the priest waving a sprig of the sacred Tulsi plant. Again? Last time it was because I was a man. This time it is because I am a wolf. Let us go, Akela. A woman, it was Masua, ran across to the herd and cried, Oh, my son, my son, they say thou art a sorcerer who can turn himself into a beast at will. I do not believe, but go away, or they will kill thee. Boldio says thou art a wizard, but I know thou hast avenged Nathu's death. Come back, Masua, shouted the crowd. Come back, or we will stone thee. Mowgli laughed a short, little, ugly laugh, for a stone had hit him in the mouth. Run back, Masua. This is one of the foolish tales they tell under the big tree at dusk. I have at least paid for thy son's life. Farewell, and run quickly for I shall send the herd in more swiftly than their brickbats. I am no wizard, Masua. Farewell. Now, once more, Akela, he cried, bring the herd in. The buffaloes were anxious enough to get to the village. They hardly needed Akela's yell, but charged to the gate like a whirlwind, scattering the crowd right and left. Keep count, shouted Mowgli scornfully. It may be that I have stolen one of them, Keep count, for I will do your hurting no more. Fare you well, children of men, and thank Masua that I do not come in with my wolves and hunt you up and down your street. He turned on his heel and walked away with the lone wolf, and as he looked up at the stars, he felt happy. No more sleeping in traps for me, Akela. Let us get Shere Khan's skin and go away. No, we will not hurt the village for Masua was kind to me. When the moon rose over the plain, making it look all milky, 
The horrified villager saw Mowgli with two wolves at his heels and a bundle on his head, trotting across at the steady wolf's trot that eats up the long miles like fire. Then they banged the temple bells and blew the conchas louder than ever. And Masua cried, and Boldio embroidered the story of his adventures in the jungle, till he ended by saying that Akela stood up on his hind legs and talked like a man. The moon was just going down when Mowgli and the two wolves came to the hill of the Council Rock, and they stopped at Mother Wolf's cave. They have cast me out from the man-pack, Mother, shouted Mowgli. But I come with the hide of Shere Khan to keep my word. Mother Wolf walked stiffly from the cave with the cubs behind her, and her eyes glowed as she saw the skin. I told him on that day, when he crammed his head and shoulders into this cave, hunting for thy life, little frog. I told him that the hunter would be the hunted. It is well done. Little brother, it is well done, said a deep voice in the thicket. We were lonely in the jungle without thee, and Bagheera came running to Mowgli's bare feet. They clambered up the council rock together, and Mowgli spread the skin out on the flat stone where Akela used to sit, and pegged it down with four slivers of bamboo, and Akela lay down upon it, and called the old call to the council. Look! Look well, O wolves! Exactly as he had called when Mowgli was first brought there. Ever since Akela had been deposed, the pack had been without a leader, hunting and fighting at their own pleasure. But they answered the call from habit, and some of them were lame from the traps they had fallen into, and some limped from shot wounds, and some were mangy from eating bad food, and many were missing but they came to the Council Rock, all that were left of them, and saw Shere Khan's striped hide on the rock, and the huge claws dangling at the end of the empty dangling feet. It was then that Mowgli made up a song that came up into his throat all by itself, and he shouted it aloud, leaping up and down on the rattling skin, and beating time with his heels till he had no more breath left, while Grey Brother and Akela howled between the verses. Look well, O wolves, have I kept my word, said Mowgli, and the wolves bayed, yes, and one tattered wolf howled, Lead us again, O Akela, lead us again, O man-cub, for we be sick of this lawlessness, and we would be the free people once more. Nay, purred Bagheera, that may not be. When ye are full-fed, the madness may come upon you again. Not for nothing are ye called the free people. Ye fought for freedom, and it is yours. Eat it, old wolves. Man-pack and wolf-pack have cast me out, said Mowgli. Now I will hunt alone in the jungle. And we will hunt with thee, said the four cubs. So Mowgli went away and hunted with the four cubs in the jungle from that day on. But he was not always alone, because years afterwards... He became a man and married. But that is a story for grown-ups. Mowgli's song that he sang at the Council Rock when he danced on Shere Khan's hide. The Song of Mowgli. I, Mowgli, am singing. Let the jungle listen to the things I have done. Shere Khan said he would kill, would kill. At the gates in the twilight he would kill Mowgli, the frog. He ate and he drank. Drink deep, Shere Khan, for when wilt thou drink again? Sleep and dream of the kill. I am alone on the grazing grounds. Grey brother, come to me. 
Come to me, lone wolf, for there is a big game afoot. Bring up the great bull buffaloes, the blue-skinned herd bulls with the angry eyes. Drive them to and fro as I order. Sleepest thou still, Shere Khan? Wake, oh, wake! Here come I, and the bulls are behind. Rama, the king of the buffaloes, stamped with his foot. Waters of the Wanganga, whither went Shere Khan? He is not Iki to dig holes, nor Mao, the peacock, that he should fly. He is not Bang, the bat, to hang in the branches. Little bamboos that creak together, tell me where he ran. Oh, he is there. Oh, he is there. Under the feet of Rama lies the lame one. Up, Shere Khan. Up and kill. Here is meat. Break the necks of the bulls. Hush, he is asleep. We will not wake him, for his strength is very great. The kites have come down to see it. The black ants have come to see it. There is great assembly in his honor. Allah, I have no cloth to wrap me. The kites will see that I am naked. I am ashamed to meet all these people. Lend me thy coat, Shere Khan. Lend me thy striped coat, that I may go to the council rock. By the bull that bought me, I made a promise. A little promise. Only thy coat is lacking before I keep my word. With a knife, with a knife that men use, with a knife of the hunter, I will stoop down for my gifts. Waters of the Wanganga, Shere Khan gives me his coat for the love that he bears me. Pull, Grey Brother, pull, Akila. Heavy is the hide of Shere Khan. The man-pack are angry. They throw stones and talk child's talk. My mouth is bleeding, let me run away. Through the night, through the hot night, run swiftly with me, my brothers. We will leave the light of the village and go to the low moon. Waters of the Wenganga, the man-pack have cast me out. I did them no harm, but they were afraid of me. Why? Wolf-pack, ye have cast me out too. The jungle is shut to me, and the village gates are shut. Why? As Mang flies between the beasts and birds, so fly I between the village and the jungle. Why? I dance on the hide of Shere Khan, but my heart is very heavy. My mouth is cut and wounded with the stones from the village, but my heart is very light, because I have come back to the jungle. Why? These two things fight together in me, as the snakes fight in the spring. The water comes out of my eyes, yet I laugh while it falls. Why? I am two Mowgli's, but the hide of Shere Khan is under my feet. All the jungle knows that I have killed Shere Khan. Look, look well, O wolves. Aha! My heart is heavy with the things that I do not understand. The White Seal Oh, hush thee, my baby, the night is behind us, and black are the waters that sparkled so green. The moon or the combers looks downward to find us at rest in the hollows that rustle between. Where billow meets billow, then soft be thy pillow. O oh, weary wee flipperling, curl at thy ease. The storm shall not wake thee, nor shark overtake thee, asleep in the arms of the slow-swinging seas. Seal Lullaby All these things happened several years ago at a place called Nova Stoshna, or Northeast Point, on the island of St. Paul, away and away in the Bering Sea. 
Limmershin, the winter wren, told me the tale when he was blown onto the rigging of a steamer going to Japan, and I took him down into my cabin and warmed and fed him for a couple of days till he was fit to fly back to St. Paul's again. Limmershin is a very quaint to bird, but he knows how to tell the truth. Nobody goes to Novastoshna except on business, and the only people who have regular business there are the seals. They come in the summer months by hundreds and hundreds of thousands out of the gold gray sea, for Novastoshna Beach has the finest accommodation for seals of any place in all the world. Sea Catch knew that, and every spring he would swim from whatever place he happened to be in, would swim like a torpedo boat straight for Novastoshna and spend a month fighting with his companions for a good place on the rocks, as close to the sea as possible. Sea Catch was fifteen years old, a huge gray fur seal with almost a mane on his shoulders, and long, wicked dog teeth. When he heaved himself up on his front flippers, he stood more than four feet clear of the ground, and his weight, if anyone had been bold enough to weigh him, was nearly seven hundred pounds. He was scarred all over with the marks of savage fights, but he was always ready for just one fight more. He would put his head on one side as though he were afraid to look his enemy in the face. Then he would shoot it out like lightning, and when the big teeth were firmly fixed on the other seal's neck, the other seal might get away if he could, but Sea Catch would not help him. Yet Sea Catch never chased a beaten seal, for that was against the rules of the beat. He only wanted room by the sea for his nursery. But as there were forty or fifty thousand other seals hunting for the same thing each spring, the whistling, bellowing, roaring, and blowing on the beach was something frightful. From a little hill called Hutchinson's Hill, you could look over three and a half miles of ground covered with fighting seals, and the surf was dotted all over with the heads of seals hurrying to land and began their share of the fighting. They fought in the breakers, they fought in the sand and they fought on the smooth-worn basalt rocks of the nurseries, for they were just as stupid and unaccommodating as men. Their wives never came to the island until late in May or early in June, for they did not care to be torn to pieces, and the young two-, three-, and four-year-old seals who had not begun housekeeping went inland about half a mile through the ranks of the fighters and played about on the sand dunes in droves and legions and rubbed off every single green thing that grew. They were called the Holoschiki, the Bachelors, and there were perhaps two or three hundred thousand of them at Novastoshna alone. Sea Catch had just finished his forty-fifth fight one spring, when Matka, his soft, sleek, gentle-eyed wife, came up out of the sea, and he caught her by the scruff of the neck and dumped her down on his reservation, saying gruffly, Late as usual, where have you been? It was not the fashion for Sea Catch to eat anything during the four months he stayed on the beaches, and so his temper was generally bad. Matka knew better than to answer back. She looked round and cooed. How thoughtful of you. You've taken the old place again. I should think I had, said Sea Catch. Look at me. He was scratched and bleeding in twenty places. One eye was almost out, and his sides were torn to ribbons. Oh, you men, you men, Matka said, fanning herself with her hind flipper. Why can't you be sensible and settle your places quietly? You look as though you had been fighting with a killer whale. I haven't been doing anything but fight since the middle of May. The beach is disgracefully crowded this season. I've met a hundred seals from Lucanon Beach house hunting, 
Why can't people stay where they belong? I've often thought we should be much happier if we hauled out at Otter Island instead of this crowded place, said Matka. Bah! Only the Holoschicky go to Otter Island. If we went there, they would say we were afraid. We must preserve appearances, my dear. Seacatch sunk his head proudly between his fat shoulders and pretended to go to sleep for a few minutes. But all the time he was keeping a sharp lookout for a fight. Now that all the seals and their wives were on the land, you could hear their clamor miles out to sea above the loudest gales. At the lowest counting, there were over a million seals on the beach. Old seals, mother seals, tiny babies and holus chicky, fighting, scuffling, bleating, crawling, and playing together, going down to the sea and coming up from it in gangs and regiments, lying over every foot of ground as far as the eye could reach, and skirmishing about in brigades through the fog. It is nearly always foggy at Novostoshna, except when the sun comes out and makes everything look all pearly and rainbow-colored for a little while. Kotick, Matka's baby, was born in the middle of that confusion, and he was all head and shoulders with pale, watery blue eyes, as tiny seals must be. But there was something about his coat that made his mother look at him very closely. See, Catch, she said at last, our baby's going to be white. Empty clamshells and dry seaweed, snorted Sea Catch. There has never been such a thing in the world as a white seal. I can't help that, said Matka. There's going to be one now. And she sang the low, crooning seal song that all the mother seals sing to their babies. You mustn't swim till you're six weeks old, or your head will be sunk by your heels. And summer gales and killer whales are bad for baby seals are bad for baby seals, dear aunt, as bad as bad can be. But splash and grow strong, and you can't be wrong, child of the open sea. Of course, the little fellow did not understand the words at first. He paddled and scrambled about by his mother's side, and learned to scuffle out of the way when his father was fighting with another seal, and the two rolled and roared up and down the slippery rocks. Matka used to go to sea to get things to eat, and the baby was fed only once in two days, but then he ate all he could and throve upon it. The first thing he did was to crawl inland, and there he met tens of thousands of babies of his own age, and they played together like puppies, went to sleep on the clean sand, and played again. The old people in the nurseries took no notice of them, and the holistic kept to their own grounds, and the babies had a beautiful playtime. When Matka came back from her deep-sea fishing, she would go straight to their playground, call as a sheep calls for a lamb, and wait until she heard Kotick bleat. Then she would take the straightest of straight lines in his direction, striking out with her four flippers and knocking the youngster's head over heels right and left. There were always a few hundred mothers hunting for their children through the playgrounds, and their babies were kept lively. But, as Matka told Kotick, so long as you don't lie in muddy water and get mange, or rub the hard sand into a cut or scratch, and so long as you never go swimming when there is a heavy sea, nothing will hurt you here. Little seals can no more swim than little children, but they are unhappy till they learn. The first time that Kotick went down to the sea, a wave carried him out beyond his depth, and his big head sank and his little hind flippers flew up exactly as his mother told him in the song. And if the next wave had not thrown him back again, 
he would have drowned. After that, he learned to lie in a beach pool and let the wash of the waves just cover him and lift him up while he paddled. But he always kept his eye open for big waves that might hurt. He was two weeks learning to use his flippers and all that while he floundered in and out of the water and coughed and grunted and crawled up the beach and took catnaps on the sand and went back again till at last he found that he truly belonged to the water. Then you can imagine the times that he had with his companions ducking under the rollers or coming in on top of a comber and landing with a swash and a splutter as the big wave went whirling far up the beach or standing up on his tail and scratching his head as the old people did or playing I'm the king of the castle on slippery, weedy rocks that just stuck out of the wash. Now and then he would see a thin fin, like a big shark's fin, drifting along close to shore and he knew that was the killer whale, a Krampus, who eats young seals when he can get them, and Kotick would head for the beach like an arrow, and the fin would jig off slowly as if it were looking for nothing at all. Late in October, the seals began to leave St. Paul's for the deep sea by families and tribes, and there was no more fighting over the nurseries, and the holluschicky played anywhere they liked. Next year, said Matkata Kotick, you will be a holluschicky, but this year you must learn how to catch fish. They set out together across the Pacific, and Matka showed Kotick how to sleep on his back with his flippers tucked down by his side and his little nose just out of the water. No cradle is so comfortable as the long, rocking swell of the Pacific. When Kotick felt his skin tingle all over, Matka told him that he was learning the feel of the water, and that tingly, prickly feeling meant bad weather was coming, and he must swim hard and get away. In a little time, she said, you'll know where to swim to, but just now we'll follow Sea Pig, the porpoise, for he is very wise. A school of porpoises were ducking and tearing through the water, and little Kotick followed them as fast as he could. How do you know where to go to, he panted. The leader of the school rolled his white eye and ducked under. My tail tingles, youngster, he said. That means there's a gale behind me. Come along. When you're south of the sticky water, he met the equator, and your tail tingles, that means there's a gale in front of you and you must head north. Come along. The water feels bad here. This was one of very many things that Kotick learned, and he was always learning. Madka taught him to follow the cod and the halibut along the undersea banks and wrench the rockling out of his hole among the weeds. How to skirt the wrecks lying a hundred fathom below water and dart like a rifle bullet in at one porthole and out at another as the fishes ran. How to dance on the top of the waves when the lightning was racing all over the sky and wave his flipper politely to the stumpy-tailed albatross and the man-of-war hawk as they went down the wind. How to jump three or four cleat fear of the water like a dolphin, flippers close to the side and tail curved, to leave the flying fish alone because they are all bony, to take the shoulder piece out of a cod at full speed ten fathoms deep, and never to stop and look at a boat or a ship, but particularly a rowboat. At the end of six months, what Cote did not know about deep-sea fishing was not worth the knowing. And all that time he never set flipper on dry ground. One day, however, as he was lying half asleep in the warm water somewhere off the island of Juan Fernandez, he felt faint and lazy all over, just as human people do when the spring is in their legs, 
and he remembered the good firm beaches of Novostoshna seven thousand miles away, the games his companions played, the smell of the seaweed, the seal roar, and the fighting. That very minute he turned north, swimming steadily, and as he went on he met scores of his mates, all bound for the same place, and they said, Greeting, Kotick! This year we are all holistic-y, and we can dance the fire dance in the breakers off Lukanen and play on the new grass. But where did you get that coat? Kotick's fur was almost pure white now, and though he felt very proud of it, he only said, Swim quickly! My bones are aching for the land. And so they all came to the beaches where they had been born, and heard the old seals, their fathers, fighting in the rolling mist. That night Kotick danced a fire dance with the yearling seals. The sea is full of fire on summer nights, all the way down from Novostoshna to Lukanon, and each seal leaves a wake like burning oil behind him, and a flaming flash when he jumps, and the waves break in great phosphorescent streaks and swirls. Then they went inland to the holistic grounds, and rolled up and down in the new wild wheat, and told stories of what they had done while they had been at sea. They talked about the Pacific as boys would talk about a wood that they had been nutting in. And if anyone had understood them, he could have gone away and made such a chart of that ocean as never was. The three- and four-year-old Holluschicky romped down from Hutchinson's Hill, crying, Out of the way, youngsters! The sea is deep and you don't know all that's in it yet. Wait till you've rounded the horn! Hi, you yearling, where did you get that white coat? I didn't get it, said Kotick. It grew. And just as he was going to roll the speaker over, a couple of black-haired men with flat red faces came from behind a sand dune, and Kodik, who had never seen a man before, coughed and lowered his head. The hollis chicky just bundled off a few yards and sat staring stupidly. The men were no less than Carrick Buterin, the chief of the seal hunters on the island, and Fatalamon, his son. They came from the little village not half a mile from the sea nurseries, and they were deciding what seals they would drive up to the killing pens, for the seals were driven just like sheep, to be turned into seal-skin jackets later on. Oh, said Paralamon, look, there's a white seal. Karakbuteran turned nearly white under his oil and spoke, for he was an Aleut, and Aleuts are not clean people. Then he began to mutter a prayer. Don't touch him, Paralamon. There has never been a white seal since... Since I was born, perhaps it is old Zarav's ghost. It was lost last year in a big gale. I'm not going near him, said Paralamon. He's unlucky. Do you really think he's old Zarav come back? I owe him for some gull's eggs. Don't look at him, said Carrick. Head off that drove of four-year-olds. The men ought to skin two hundred today, but that's the beginning of this season, and they are new to the work. A hundred will do. Quick! Paralaman rattled a pair of seal shoulder bones in front of a herd of holluschicky, and they stopped dead, buffing and blowing. Then he stepped near, and the seals began to move, and Carrick headed them inland, and they never tried to get back to their companions. Hundreds and hundreds of thousands of seals watched them being driven, but they went on playing just the same. Kotick was the only one who asked questions, and none of his companions could tell him anything except that the men always drove seals in that way for six weeks or two months of every year. I'm going to follow, he said, and his eyes nearly popped out of his head as he shuffled along in the wake of the herd. The white seal is coming after us, cried Patalamon. 
That's the first time a seal has ever come to the killing grounds alone. Hush, don't look behind you, said Garrick. It is Zaharov's ghost. I must speak to the priest about... The distance to the killing grounds was only half a mile, but it took an hour to cover. Because if the seals went too fast, Carrick knew that they would get heated and then their fur would come off in patches when they were skinned. So they went on very slowly, past Sea Lion's Neck, past Webster House, till they came to the Salt House just beyond the sight of the seals on the beach. Kotick followed, panting and wondering. He thought that he was at the world's end, but the roar of the seal nurseries behind him sounded as loud as the roar of a train in a tunnel. Then Garrick sat down on the moss and pulled out a heavy pewter watch and let the drove cool off for thirty minutes, and Kodak could hear the fog dew dripping off the brim of his cap. Then ten or twelve men, each with an iron-bound club three or four feet long, came up, and Garrick pointed out one or two of the drove that were bitten by their companions or too hot and the men kicked those aside with their heavy boots made of the skin of a walrus's throat, and then Kerrig said, Let go! And the men clubbed the seals on the head as fast as they could. Ten minutes later, little Kodak did not recognize his friends anymore, for the skins were ripped off from the nose to the hind flippers, whipped off and thrown down on the ground in a pile. That was enough for Kotick. He turned and galloped. A seal can gallop very swiftly for a short time. Back to the sea, his little new mustache bristling with horror. At Sea Lion's Neck, where the great sea lion sat on the edge of the surf, he flung himself flipper overhead into the cool water and rocked there, gasping miserably. What's here? said a sea lion gruffly, for as a rule, the sea lions keep themselves to themselves. Scoochney, Orkin, Scoochney, I'm lonesome, very lonesome, said Kotick. They're killing all of the holluschicky on all the beaches. The sea lion turned his head inshore. Nonsense, he said. Your friends are making as much noise as ever. You must have seen old Carrick polishing off a drove. He's done that for thirty years. It's horrible, said Kotick, becking water as a wave went over him, and steadying himself with a screw stroke of his flippers that brought him all standing within three inches of a jagged edge of rock. Well done for a yearling, said the sea lion. Who could appreciate good swimming? I suppose it is rather awful from your way of looking at it. But if you seals will come here year after year, of course the men get to know of it. And unless you can find an island where no men ever come, you will always be driven. Isn't there any such island? began Kodik. I've followed the Poltus, the halibut, for twenty years, and I can't say I've found it yet. But look here. You seem to have a fondness for talking to your betters. Suppose you go to Walrus Inlet and talk to Sevich. He may know something. Don't flounce off like that. It's a six-mile swim, and if I were you, I should haul out and take a nap first, little one. I want to remind you that we're always on the hunt for great public domain stories like this one to feature on the podcast. If you know of any, please let us know. Email me, bigvoicej at gmail.com. We now have a YouTube channel of some of our greatest stories. Go to tiny.cc slash bvjbedtime. And if you'd like to support the show, there's a Buy Me A Coffee link on every page and post. Don't forget to give us a review on iTunes. It helps to spread the word that we're putting people to sleep, that we're putting people to sleep every single night. 
Thank you so much for listening. Good night. Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs>